Mark chapter 9 today. Mark chapter 9. And we'll start reading in verse, verse number 14. And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, How how long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Father God, I pray this morning that you would just help us now as we conclude our service by looking at your word. I pray that you would fill me with your spirit. I pray that this day I would not be trusting in Uh, my gifts or my uh, experience in preaching or my outline or anything, but only in you. I pray today that you would fill me with your spirit and speak through me, that you would help me to say the things I ought to say and nothing I ought not. And I pray today that you would speak to all of us, that we would hear this message. Lord, there's not a person in this room to whom this passage does not speak. And so I pray that all of us would hear and all of us would respond. Teach us today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple years ago, I attended a church in Philadelphia. I was in Philadelphia on a business conference, and uh, I was there on a Sunday, and I told some people who were there with me, you know, I don't care where I am on a Sunday, if at all possible, I'm going to go to the Lord's house. And I said, so I'm going to skip all these seminar things that are going on on Sunday morning, and I'm going to church. It was in old city Philadelphia. And I walked down past the Liberty Bell and all those kinds of things, and I went to, I, I can't remember the, the name of the church, it's an Episcopal church there in Old City, Philadelphia, that was known to be uh, in, a, in, in place even when the founding fathers were here, and they had attended and all that, so I wanted to go there. So I get into the church and I sit down, I sat down in the very pew that had a plaque on it that said John Adams used to sit in this very pew, and there was a few other names there too, Lafayette maybe was one of them, and I think maybe George Washington, I can't remember, but several famous people had sat on this very piece of wood that I was sitting on, and so it was really interesting, and the pipe organ on the back wall was probably worth more than our entire property here, just the pipe organ alone. 
And so I sat there looking around, and then the pastor took the pulpit, and as he stood up in the pulpit, he said, My, my, what a difference a week makes. And see, I was there the week after Easter. The previous week, apparently, the church had been absolutely wall-to-wall people. And as I looked around that day, there might have been, in a church probably five times the size of this one, a building, there might have been 30 people there. What a difference a week makes. Reality had set in. Well, just a day prior to that which we're reading right here, Peter and James and John had been with Jesus on the mountain. And they had witnessed the transfiguration, the most remarkable of sights. They had seen Jesus transfigured before them. They had watched in amazement as Elijah and Moses uh, had appeared and talked with Jesus about the coming cross. They had seen the Shekinah glory of God descend upon the mountain, and they had heard the very voice of God speak out of that out of that cloud and say, "This is my beloved son." And now here we are, just one day later, and they come down from the mountain with Jesus. And they find themselves back in the world. What a difference a day can make. Moses said to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse number 11, he said, The land which you, are, which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven. How true of our Christian life. A land of hills and valleys. Until we get to glory, we may have times where we're on the mountaintop with the Lord Jesus Christ, but those will be, frankly, the exceptions rather than the norm. Most of the Christian life will be lived out in the valleys of this world. And so here's Peter and James and John and the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've descended the mountain, and they're witnessing a common scene in the valley below. A crowd has gathered around the other nine disciples who were still down there. A man had brought his demon-possessed child to them for healing. The scribes, ever questioning of Jesus and ever seeking some opportunity to discredit his ministry, were present, apparently taking glee in the disciples' failure and and inability to uh, perform this miracle and effect this cure. All the while, the child is there displaying the agonies of his condition, and the father is there distressed over the whole thing. Can you see that? You see the scene? Well, now, there's all kinds of things we could discuss from this passage. There's a lot of truth in this. This is, and every time I say this, I I, I chuckle inwardly because I think I say this about almost every passage of Scripture that I come across and that I preach from. But this is actually one of my favorite passages of Scripture in all of the Bible. There's so much here. We could discuss, for example, the condition of the child. Look at verses 17 and 18. Then one of the crowd answered, and, and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now, in Matthew's account of this uh, uh, situation, Matthew describes the boy's condition as epilepsy. If you look at Matthew chapter 17, verse 15, you'll see he uses that word there, epilepsy. But in all three of the Gospels, and this appears in all three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the synoptic Gospels. In all three of them, even Matthew, it is stated plainly that this condition is rooted in demon possession. And and even though I don't think it's the main point of this passage, it's it's a point we must not let escape our thoughts. The key point of the passage has to do with belief, and, and we'll see that, and the healing of the boy as a result of that belief. But let's not skip over the reason why the boy was in the condition he was in. 
He was under the influence of Satan, our great adversary, our enemy. And I want you to notice, look at verse number 21. How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Parents need to underline that verse in their Bibles. Every parent here ought to have that underlined in their Bible. Satan wants our children. And when does he start influencing our children? From childhood. Early in their lives, he will do anything he can to drag them away. Why do we have Sunday schools? Why do we have junior church? Why do we constantly hammer parents from the pulpits of our land that they should make their children get out of bed on Sunday morning and come for just that one little bit of instruction in the things of God? Why? Because of this verse and the terrible truth of which it reminds us. Satan wants to keep every one of us from Christ. I cannot begin to understand what motivates our great adversary to this level of hatred of not only us, but of God primarily. I can't understand it, but the Bible is clear that it's there, that we have an enemy, an adversary, and he starts early. Parents, it's not the main point of the passage, but I hope you see it. Satan will destroy your children any way he can. And the answer for your kids is the same answer that Jesus gave to this man in verse number 19. Bring him to me. Bring him to me. We need to bring them early, and we need to bring them often to Jesus. For Satan is relentless in hitting them early and often. Well, but that's not what the passage is really about. We could talk about that. We could also discuss the means and method Christ used to heal the child. We see that in verse number 25. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Just as we've seen so many times, Jesus' words cast out this demon and healed this boy. We've seen that many times, and we could go back over a long list of miracles that we've already discussed, where Jesus, with a word, accomplished the miracle. But I want you to notice something interesting here. Notice that Jesus' words not only cast the demon out, but kept him out. Did you see that there? Kept it from returning. This cure was permanent. I like how one commentator put it. He, he explained Jesus' words here as, Get out and do not ever start to come back. I like that. That's apparently exactly what the Greek words mean. In other words, get out of him. Don't even think about coming back to him. Get out of him and don't even turn around and look back this way. Get out and stay out. What a Savior we have. Astonishing. But again, that's not the main point. It's just something we could talk about. We could discuss the conversation that occurred between Jesus and the Father in verses 21 through 24. He asked his Father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This father asked Jesus to heal his boy. But there was just a modicum of unbelief in his request, wasn't there? A modicum of doubt. Look at verse 23. He said, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus seized upon those words. 
And he tossed them right back at the Father. It's not so easy to see this if you're holding a King James or a New King James Bible just because of the way the punctuation is rendered there. Uh, the NIV and the New American Standard and the ESV, they all render this verse slightly differently. They would put a question mark after the word can. If you can, question mark, all things are possible to those who believe. The New Living Translation makes it even clearer when it renders it like this. What do you mean if I can, question mark? Anything is possible if a person believes. Jesus Jesus took up the Father's words of doubt, if you can, to show that the point was not his ability to heal the boy, but the Father's ability to trust in God who can do what is humanly impossible. Another time Jesus would look at them and say, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. That's what he's trying to teach him here. Another commentator said, notice carefully the words, if you can, for they are the key to understanding Jesus here. The boy's father had just said, if you can do anything. And Jesus is saying back, in essence, you say, if you can to me, but that is not the issue. Of course I can. No, my friend, the burden is on you, because everything is possible for him who believes. Jesus is standing nose to nose with the man and challenging him to believe. The world is standing still. Eternity is passing between them. And at this, the man admits something. And I think he admits something that we must all admit to. An imperfect and faltering faith. Look what he says in verse 24, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. There's another passage we ought to all underline in our Bibles, because unless you're really something I don't understand, it's true of every single one of us. I know it's true of me. I believe. But my faith is imperfect. When my wife died, I came face to face with an awful lot of questions. I wrote about a lot of those questions in a little booklet called My Grief Observed. And one of the chapters in that booklet I entitled, I Believe. And I said in that book that it gave me joy. And it was a cause of rejoicing for me to recognize that even though I believed afterwards, I still believe, or believed before, I, I still believed throughout that experience, and I still believed after that experience, and, and, and it, it gave me a cause of rejoicing. And the words I wrote in that chapter are true. There's no, no question. But don't think for a moment there weren't questions. Don't think for a moment that that faith wasn't faltering for a while there. What, what Christian is there among us who can say differently than that? I don't think there's any of us. Of the father in this passage, one commentator, Kent Hughes, he wrote this. He said, here is an honest man, one of the most transparent characters in the Bible. His faith was trembling and imperfect, but real. A faith which declares itself publicly and at the same time recognizes its weaknesses and pleads for health is a real faith. Another man said, we see in these words a vivid picture of the heart of many a true Christian. Among believers we find few indeed in whom trust and doubt, hope and fear do not exist side by side. Nothing is perfect in the children of God so long as they live in the body. Their knowledge, love and humility are all more or less defective, mingled with corruption. And as it is with their other graces, so it is with their faith. They believe and yet have about them a remainder of unbelief. What shall we do with our faith? Well, we must use it. Weak and trembling and doubting and feeble as it may be, we must use it. We must not wait till it is great and perfect and powerful, but like the man in this passage, 
turn it to account and hope that one day it will be more strong. I do believe, he said. What shall we do with our unbelief? We must resist it and pray against it. We must not allow it to keep us back from Christ. We must take it to Christ as as we take all our other sins and weaknesses and cry to him for deliverance like the man in this passage. We must cry, help me overcome my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. We could talk about that. We could also discuss the conversation that occurred between Jesus and the disciples in verses 28. And 29, did you notice that? When he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And so he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Here are the disciples, and they're clearly flummoxed by their failure. And so they asked Jesus about it. Why couldn't we do this? And the answer Mark records is not as detailed as we find in Matthew. If you look at the account in Matthew, it says this, Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Here is how some others have explained the problem the disciples were facing. The disciples had failed because they had not prayerfully depended on God's power. Apparently, they had trusted in past successes and had failed. And if you remember back in chapter 6, when they had been empowered and sent out, they had come back and said, hey, look, Lord, at all we were able to do. And so apparently they were trusting, at least to a certain extent, in their own uh, past successes. And others said their failure was not because they didn't try. On the contrary, they did their best. Their problem was unbelief. They believed in the process. They believed in themselves because they had done it previously, but they were not resting their faith in him. All these topics are worthy of discussion, and we could spend some time from this passage preaching lengthy sermons out of any one of those things. There's much to learn from each. But there is a single truth that I think is the crux of this passage, the very theme of this passage. And we cannot understand uh, the passage without it. And so I want to focus the remainder of our study on that. And, and that single truth is the word belief. Belief. Everything in the passage hinges on that word. Belief. Jesus bemoaned unbelief in the disciples and crowd in verse 19. He probed the belief of the Father in verse 23. He heard the Father's trembling confession regarding his imperfect belief in verse 24. He healed the boy because of that oh-so-slight belief in verse 25. And finally, he explained to the disciples that the very root of their failure was lack of belief in verse 29. So let's explore it, and let's do it like this. There are three different peoples or groups of people here, all of them illustrate for us a form of unbelief. Let's look at those three and see if we can understand what's happening here. First of all, let's think about the scribes. The scribes are mentioned, and I haven't mentioned them yet, but they are mentioned here in this passage. And I would suggest to you that the scribes demonstrate a form of unbelief that I would call callous unbelief. Callous unbelief. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this group uh, because they're almost an afterthought in the story. Not much is said about them other than just mention that they were there. But if we further read in the Gospels, it makes it clear that as a whole, this was a group that simply did not believe Christ was the Savior. They had a form of belief. And it's very important to see. They had a form of belief, but it was not a saving belief. They were, for the most part, as the writer to the Hebrews described, lost and unable to believe to the saving of the soul. They obviously believed something about Jesus. They were standing and looking him in the face. They obviously believed that he existed that he was real, 
They believed in this historical person of Jesus because they were there and part of the story. But they were lost and unable to believe to the saving of the soul. So let's just make one quick application from this group and move on. It is possible, you know, for people to believe in Jesus and die and go to hell. It is possible for people to believe in Jesus and not be saved. It is possible to believe and be lost. How? Just believe like this group believed. Just believe like them. Believe he existed, but refuse to, be, to believe he existed as the Son of God. Believe he was a good man, but refuse to believe he was the Savior. Believe he was a good teacher and his words are worthy of thought, but believe refuse to believe that his words apply directly to you. Believe he died, but refuse to believe he rose. Believe in him just like you believe in every other historical figure, but refuse to believe that one day you will stand eyeball to eyeball and give an account with him. See, that's the belief of the scribes. It's actually a callous unbelief, a refusal to believe he is who he said he was, a refusal to believe that he is the only way to heaven. And he is the only way to heaven, right? My Bible tells me there is not salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse number 12. So, my friend, this morning, if you are in that group, you're in a dark place. You're in a dangerous place. You're in a place with just the slightest hope of escape. And I would encourage you this morning to pray as this father prayed. Lord, I believe. (laughs) Help my unbelief. Pray for a softening of your hard heart. Pray for understanding of the truth. Pray that God will give you another chance and open your heart to the truth. Pray before it is too late. I know some of the scribes no doubt came to Christ, but the majority of the scribes who refused to believe, who suffered this callous form of unbelief, are undoubtedly in hell today. For that's what Scripture says is the end of those who die with this form of belief callous unbelief, believing in the historical Jesus, but not in the Son of God, Jesus. Revelation chapter 21, the cowardly, the unbelieving, abominable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The unbelieving shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The scribes, callous, unbelief. The second that I would suggest we ought to look at here is the father. The father displayed a form of unbelief. I would call it shaken unbelief. Shaken unbelief. Now, clearly, this man believed something about Jesus. He had enough belief to come in the first place. He had heard the reports of Jesus' abilities, and perhaps he had even heard of the disciples' abilities. It was becoming common knowledge. After all, Jesus had, way back in, uh, where was it, Mark chapter 6, Jesus had called the twelve to himself, and he had begun to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits, and they cast out many demons. They anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Herod heard of him, and his name had become well known. If Herod had heard, then Jesus' reputation must have been spreading far and wide. And if Jesus' reputation was spreading, it stands to reason so to the disciples. And so he believed enough to come. He believed enough to bring his son. He believed enough to ask for healing. And so he did that. And then something happened. Something happened that he didn't expect. These disciples who had this reputation for being able to do the very thing that he was asking of them could not heal his son. They failed. 
in this case. Now, we've already mentioned that his imperfect and faltering faith was something we all experience from time to time, but let's add another layer on that now. Let's add another layer. Here we see an imperfect and faltering faith that may have been made more imperfect and may have been made more faltering by the failure of other believers. I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And then those sad words, but and I paraphrase, but what about you, Jesus? Can you do anything? If you can do something, help us. I can't help but wonder, when the disciples failed, what effect did it have on this father's faith in Christ? And it seems, at least to a certain extent, that when they failed, his belief was shaken to the point where he actually doubted now Christ's ability, not just theirs. His belief in Christ was shaken not by Christ letting him down, but by Christians doing so. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, do you see the application there? The application is so clear and so convicting. We have such an impact on other people. How we live for Christ is a witness to all those around us, and when we falter at it, it affects those around us. I I heard a preacher say one time, many today will go to hell not because Christ can't save them, but because some Christian let them down. Our testimonies, or, or rather the lack thereof, can indeed lead people to stay away from Christ in the hope of salvation. But not only that, our testimonies or the lack thereof can also cause believers to falter in their service for Christ. That same preacher went on to say many Christians will also sit on the sidelines, never amounting to anything for Christ because of the failure of some other Christian in their life. Does that convict you as much as it does me? How you live for Christ affects others. What they see you do what they hear you say, what they see you write or share on Facebook, what they observe of how central Jesus Christ is in your own life impacts others big time. Our words ought to build others up and not shake their faith. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Our actions and how we spend our time, our priorities, ought to build others up. Not shake their faith. Paul said to the Romans, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify another, build others up. So we can either build others up in their faith or we can be their excuse for unbelief. How we need to guard against the latter. Just yesterday, Kathy and I went to a movie. We went to see Beauty and the Beast. Beauty and the Beast. And while we were there, you know, when you're in the movie theater, you're supposed to take these little things, supposed to turn them off, right? So I had mine off, and I had it in my pocket. And about in the middle of the movie, it uh, buzzed me. Somebody was texting me. And I also have a smartwatch, which tells me what's on my phone. So I glanced at my phone, and here's what I read. I have 27 minutes. Want to fight one or two rounds? So I thought, Okay. Wonder what that is. I didn't recognize the number. A few seconds later, buzzed again. Oops. Wrong person. Sorry. I thought, well, that's kind of amusing. About five minutes later, buzzed me one more time. And this person said, also, I'm talking about a game, not actual fighting. Now, I don't know who that was. Was that anybody in here? 
I don't, I don't know who that was. But whoever it was, he cared enough about how he came across to make sure he was clear. Or she, whoever it was. Do we care what other people think whenever we say something? Whenever we post something? Do we care how we're coming across? Look at the shaken faith of this father and recognize how he was impacted by the failure of other brothers and sisters. I wonder this morning if you, my friend, are one who, like this father, have a faith, but it's been shaken. Perhaps perhaps it's the attacks of Satan, such as he was experiencing here, or perhaps it was the failure of other Christians. Maybe that's been trip, tripped you up. If so, I would say two things to you. Number one, you're not alone. It's common. But this is very important that you see this. You're also not given a pass. Would you notice, please, Jesus' response to this father's shaken faith? His response was to rebuke it. He said, what do you mean, if you can? Who do you think you're talking to here is basically what he's saying. And then he instructed him in the solution, believe. I think the clearest paraphrase of verse number 23, and you could put this in your New King James Bible. You could just put the punctuation in there. I think the clearest instruction of what Jesus was saying is this. If you can, question mark, believe, exclamation exclamation point. All things are possible to him who believes. Jesus rebuked his unbelief and told him, you need to believe. A shaken faith is still sin. It's still it's still something that needs to be corrected. So, brother or sister, with shaken belief, if that's you, I want to encourage you to underline that verse in your Bible. Look hard at it, verse 23. Underline it and repeat it over and over to yourself until you get it. And you, too, need to pray the prayer of the Father, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. One more. One more group here, and then we'll be done. And that's the disciples. The disciples also showed a form of unbelief. They showed careless unbelief. Now, there are some things that we know about these disciples which makes their failure in this case seem somewhat surprising, isn't it? We know they were believers. Mark chapter 8 and verse number 29, we heard Peter's great confession of faith. We know that they were empowered and commissioned by Christ. We mentioned that back in Mark chapter 6. We know they were given the tools and authority to accomplish just what this father was requesting. We know that they had a reputation for success in this very thing. They'd been going around such that people heard about it, and yet they failed now. And when afterwards they asked Jesus why, he told them it was a matter of their unbelief. Their unbelief and that the solution to it was prayer. Now think about this. They had been separated from Jesus while he was on the mountain. And while they were separated with him on the mountain, they had become powerless. And his answer to them was that they needed to remain connected through prayer. In another time and place, Jesus would say to them, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. There's another verse we ought to underline. Without me, you can do nothing. When the disciples were separated from their Savior, their power and their effectiveness diminished. In his physical absence, one person said, it is the discipline of constantly relying upon him in prayer that keeps us connected to him. And without that, without him, we are powerless. Without prayer, our lifeline to Jesus, we are as weak as Samson without his hair. 
J.C. Ryle says, let us learn a lesson of humility from the failure of the disciples. Let us strive to realize every day our need of the grace and presence of Christ. With him, we may do all things. Without him, we can do nothing at all. With him, we may overcome the greatest temptations. Without him, the least may overcome us. And so let our cry be every morning, do not leave us to ourselves. We do not know what a day may bring. If your presence does not go with us, we cannot go up from here. What happened when they got separated from the Savior? They, they got careless. They let down their guard. They slackened their efforts at prayer. They did not think to pray. They forgot that there had to be a radical dependence if God's prayer was the course, or God's power was the course through their lives. Jesus was teaching them that the faith which brings power is a faith that prays. As Beth so picturesquely described in her book, Farmer Girl, they got a kink in their garden hose. That kind of careless unbelief, pretty stinking common in America today. It's pretty common in evangelical Christianity here, especially where we have so little and need so little. When American Christians fear that they're going to lose something, they're going to lose financially, or they're going to lose some of their freedoms, then all of a sudden they pray. Our prayer meetings in this church were pretty full before that last grueling election when people were fearful that somebody might get elected that would take away some freedom or somehow impact their wallet. But you know what happened the day after election day? It went right back the way it had always been. We are so careless in prayer. And the solution, brothers and sisters, for all of us who fall prey to the same careless unbelief of these disciples is to heed the words of the Savior and pray. You know what we ought to start by praying? The same prayer as his father. Lord, I believe. Help my careless unbelief. So I ask you this morning as we wrap it up, which form of unbelief hits home with you, Christian? It's hard to imagine anybody who doesn't fall at least to some extent into one of these categories. I see myself in every one of them to a certain extent. Are you struggling with callous unbelief like the scribes? You've heard the gospel. You know it inside out, yet you just refuse to believe it. If that's you, my friend, it is an express elevator to hell. And only the grace of God has let you have as much time as you've had. And he could withdraw that mercy at any moment. And you would spend all of eternity in hell. Will you not trust Jesus today? You need to. You need to not remain like the scribes stubbornly refusing to believe. Just pray, help my unbelief. Help my unbelief before it is everlastingly too late. Maybe you're struggling with shaken belief, as the father was. Maybe some other believer in the past has shaken your faith, and you think you have an excuse. You don't know what somebody did to me, preacher. But remember, Christ rebuked the father's unbelief because it showed his perspective was wrong. He was watching the Lord's servants rather than the Lord. Unbelief, even shaken unbelief, is sin. And so don't allow that sin to remain in your life just because some other believer has disappointed you. It's your responsibility as a believer to keep your eyes on Christ. And so just believe. You too need to pray. Will you not pray today? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or maybe you're struggling as the disciples were with careless unbelief. Maybe you've had victories in your life. Maybe you've seen great things from God in your life, and maybe that's the case even now. Maybe you're kind of on a mountaintop in your Christianity right now. 
And I would say to you, beware that past victory or even current victory doesn't allow you to forget the source of all victory. Beware that past victory doesn't allow you to grow complacent and overconfident and maybe even a little cocky in your Christianity, as happened with these disciples. Christ said it's unbelief. It's unbelief and it's sin. And you too need to pray, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. 